0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we have a founder uh, from Europe uh, and it's pretty interesting, the story, you know, on how he has gone across different continents and building and scaling and and exiting, you name it. So I think that we're going to learn quite a bit. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Max Bittner. Welcome to the show.
1: Great to meet you, Alejandro.
0: So originally born in Munich. So tell us how was life growing up?
1: I mean, Munich is a, is a wonderful little town. Um, it's, it's a cozy place, uh, close to the mountains. You get to uh, enjoy all aspects of life, skiing in the winter, you know, spending times on the lakes or traveling in Europe. So it's, it's, it was a fantastic upbringing uh, with lots of fond memories and, and great friends, which I still have to this day. And anyone
0: in the family was, was into business? Or, or did that love you know, for entrepreneurship come later on?
1: No, my parents were not really uh, entrepreneurs. My, my dad uh, had a more traditional kind of consultant banking background. Um, and my mom initially supported us as a family before we, she went back to work in my early age. But, but the entrepreneurship uh, in the family kind of started with me.
0: Got it. And obviously, early on, you were traveling quite a bit, too. And you were exposed to the U.S. Uh, and perhaps, you know, that shaped your mindset and your perspective quite a bit. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I've been extremely fortunate in my, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my dad was, was uh, kind of a consultant banking background and, and we moved around at the time. Um, I moved to New York, uh, back in 86, 87, uh, for a year to spend, you know, I think it was my second grade in school at the age of six or seven. Um, which, which was an amazing experience just to be exposed to different culture and, um, you know, different mindsets. And, and I've kind of kept that connection to the U S over the years, um, being in summer camp almost every summer from from the age of six seven onwards until like you know when to to university I guess because I went to you know as a camper then as a counselor in training and, and, and then as a counselor itself um, and it's been always amazing to to kind of meet different people from different kind of walks of life and I think it's really changed and and, and inspired me to have a very kind of global um, experience.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing, and obviously, uh. As, as we've chatted offline, you know, I used to do that too, going to summer camps and, you know, definitely gives you a, a different perspective being here in the U.S. Obviously, you came here to the U.S. later on, but before even that happened, you moved to Scotland to finish high school. How, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, I think my, my parents at some point, I was about 15, 16, um, realized that, you know, there was a lot of things distracting me in beautiful Munich. Um, you know you're you're you know a young man and, and and you're growing up and you know there's many things you prefer doing than uh, studying as hard as you can for your your high school graduation and and they had the wonderful idea to to send me off to boarding school in the UK and, and we've looked at a couple of schools most of them were in England and one of the schools we looked at was up in you know somewhere north of Edinburgh uh, in a city called Perth uh, and I went to a we, we went there on a on probably the one sunny day that they have a year. Uh, it was a beautiful setting, you know, in the green hills, the sun was shining, the kids were coming from church, wearing their kilts, kicking around a rugby ball. Um, and, you know, I just saw the the glowing in my parents' eyes because, you know, this seemed like a beautiful place. Um, and then, you know, a couple of months later, I was then sitting in what was not sunny anymore, Scotland, and, and exposed to constant rain, but at least that, uh, you know, forced me to to focus back on school i hear you and talking about school you ended up studying
0: economics and history in london so why economics and history
1: um you know i think the the economics part was the rational side the the history part was the you know the passion the fun side um you know you know just studying history maybe felt a bit um you know too uh too classical. Um, so, so we added a bit of economics to the mix to, to, to at least have some sort of a career prospect at the time. I, I spent I, admittedly very little time on the economic side. Um, I thought it was rather dull. Uh, and I, I much preferred uh, you know, studying history, studying you know different times of, of largely revolutions, industrial revolution, the American revolution, the British revolution, the French revolution. So that's really the, the area I, I loved focusing on. And, and it was amazing. And then you obviously took the
0: route, you know, that happens now being in Europe. It's either you become a lawyer or you become a banker. So you went to Morgan Stanley and I'm sure that you did quite a bit of uh, perhaps presentations for clients.
1: Yeah, I don't know. No. So I've, I was actually, you know, on, on the way to become an entrepreneur already back then. It was, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s when I was in university. Uh, and I started doing internships in, in some of these tech startups um very early on, ninety-nine, two thousand, I did an internship at a company called Auto Scout, which which you know I think is still around as a listed company. Um and I was super excited to do that. But by the time I graduated, um, you know, that that bubble had burst and, and the opportunities to work um at startups uh you know had, had ra- rapidly disappeared. Um and then I had to figure out in the last like five, six months of um of my studies, you know what else to do, and um somehow got exposed to to investment in banking because that's what people did in london and and uh you know ended up uh you know doing um you know what most bankers do and they're analysts working way too many hours, understanding way too little what I was actually doing um and and you know in some sort of way uh you know t- t- trying to get by being pretty miserable <laughs> i hear you i hear you and and obviously
0: you know then you did the mba and then that that was a segue to doing mckinsey a little bit of consulting so so perhaps the mba would you say that the mba maybe like it kind of like uh, gave you you know that uh, i don't know like that reminder that that maybe entrepreneurship you know would happen you know at some point
1: yeah i think it, it, i really realized pretty quickly when i was in banking um, that that is not something i wanted to do i mean you know back then everyone kind of went to banking and then private equity or hedge funds and I just didn't enjoy um, finance that much. Um, So I I knew I wanted to do something else and I knew that I kind of had to round up my skill set. You know, doing an MBA was a great opportunity to step back and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. Um, And I, you know, I, you know, this is 2005, 2006, 2007. And back then we had companies like, you know, Facebook was coming to campus already and they were still a fairly young company. Um, Google and those guys were there, but I, I, I didn't feel quite ready yet myself. Um, so I felt that, that doing a couple of years in consulting would really round up kind of my experience and, and and figure out what that big thing could be that I go after. Like most people, you know, especially you know people who join McKinsey, it's a great place to learn. It's you're, you're surrounded by great people, and, and 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 I got stuck a bit longer than I wanted. Um, but in one of my last projects that I did at McKinsey, um, I, I basically took um, uh, half a year off to join um, a private equity firm based in London um, as a secundee. Um, and, in, and in my head, I kind of had the vision of being a glamorous PE investor out of London. Um, but on the first or second day when I arrived, they said, you know, we actually have this big portfolio company. Up in the north um, of of England, um, and we want to send you up there as a kind of chief restructuring officer. Um, and 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 here I was on a on a train up to I think it was in Preston uh, outside of Manchester, um, and I spent the nas- next like four or five months um, helping to to turn around that business, um, which was an absolutely incredible experience. Just just kind of being there in the thick of it, having the responsibility, you know, dealing with with real problems. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like the, the Matrix, you know, you, you kind of get exposed to the blue pill or the white pill. I can't remember which one was which. Uh, and once you take the pill and, and, and experience that, that real life, um, it's very hard to go back. So in my head, I was basically, you know, sold and, and ready to leave. Um, and then it took about another six, seven months uh, for me to, to leave McKinsey to, to kind of pursue the opportunity uh, with Lazada and, and, and pursuing the e-commerce opportunity uh, in Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, and obviously Lasada, it was um, your your first rodeo, your first baby, no? And uh, and obviously here, you know, like there was a conversation that happened with uh, with your significant other, uh, and basically it sounded like the idea of uh, bringing the business to life, you know, happened very quickly, and all of a sudden you find yourself in Asia. Is that right?
1: Exactly, exactly. No, I I, I think my wife understood that it was. Uh... You know, I, I I I had the fire burning in my belly and, and I and I needed to do something um uh, big and and you know, McKinsey, you know, while it was an amazing experience, um, you know, at some point had had you know lost his uh, allure to me. Um and, and we were also kind of back in Munich. Uh, I moved back to Munich to join McKinsey after, you know, ten you no know, 13 years. Um, and, and we really also wanted to experience the rest of the world before kind of getting stuck in that life that my parents lived in, in Munich. Um, and then the opportunity and the idea of, of uh, Lazada came uh, by. I, I met a couple of investors who who had also thought about the idea, and they actually looked at e-commerce from a fashion side, kind of a Zalando Zappos um, kind of company. I brought the the e-commerce kind of Amazon idea on the table because I felt that the general merchandise model comes before the fashion model. Uh, crazily enough, this is like late 2011. Amazon was, you know, still not a, you know, it was a big company, it was 50, 60 billion, but it was still losing money, never made profit. Um, it was not the juggernaut that, that it is today. It's not the $1.5 trillion company it is today. Um, you know, but I, I really felt the opportunity was just immense, especially in markets which are uh, what were back there, you know, still are today, emerging markets, where the the you know, offline retail development was just much less uh, sophisticated. And, and and you know, we discussed about regions which could be exciting, um, and, and Southeast Asia clearly came to mind. You know, we're talking about a region with six hundred, seven hundred million people living in a proximity of like two, three hours of flight. Um, you know, in, in and many similarities. You know, the, the countries can be very different geographically, the language, um, religions. I mean, it's it's a very diverse region, but but it, they all face very similar challenges and e-commerce and providing kind of the one-stop shop vision for the region, for for sellers and merchants and brands to enter the region, for for local merchants to to um you know get accessibility to a much bigger customer base. I mean, it, it all fitted together amazingly. And, and I flew over, you know, back then to Singapore and Jakarta and, and, and Manila. Um, and I called my wife, I think after two or three days, and I said, we're moving. And I think we literally moved with our just newly born first daughter. Uh, within two, three weeks, uh, we, we had moved to, to Singapore and, and started building Azada. Wow. So how was it like to
0: adjust to, to a completely different market? I mean, obviously, here you are. Obviously, you've had some exposure to the U.S., uh, to Europe as well. But, you know, we're talking about a completely different market. So, so how crazy was to adjust to, to this new market, you know, building a, a business from, from nothing?
1: I mean, it's, it was the most incredible experience. I mean, especially the way we launched the business um, was fairly aggressive. Uh, we launched in, in five big markets simultaneously uh, early 2012. We launched in Indone- Indonesia. Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Philippines. We launched Singapore two years later. um I was based in Singapore at the time because it was just the most central place to live and to fly. um I would travel to you know two sometimes three countries per week um so so just just you know killing myself, um getting up at five a m getting home at ten p m if i if I didn't sleep uh, in one of these markets. Um and, and working with you know amazing colleagues, uh, you know, my co-founders across these markets, you know, some of these were some of these kids were were, you know, 26, 27 um country CEOs, um, hiring what were huge teams within you know months, uh within a year. Um, you know, <laughs> several of these markets had close to a thousand employees, um and, and just just going at it um you know, because it was such a unique opportunity and we always knew we had a limited time window. The, the region, you know, was pretty empty at the time, but it was only, a, you know, it was only a matter of time until, you know, the Alibabas and the Amazons of this world were going to put their attention on it. So it was a race from day one and and and, and we just killed ourselves to, to, to make it happen. I mean, the experiences in these markets were, were crazy. I mean, they they were absolutely crazy. You live in markets where you know, you have regular floods. You had, uh, I mean, we had a coup d'etat. Uh, the Thai government was overthrown. Um, you know, we had our run-ins with, with you know, local authorities, um, difficulties in getting licenses, people trying to uh, blackmail us, death threats. I mean, they, they, we were really coming into this market, disrupting what were deeply, in deeply seated and rooted economic, Interest that that were held by a few families in each of these markets who, who clearly did not um, you know see us disrupting their offline retail businesses as as too kind, um, but the speed at which we were able to scale, um, you know largely driven by by an amazing you know two, three super trends which came together at the same time um you know just just uh, allowed us to 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 challenge the uh, the status quo extremely hard i mean you, you you know let's let's go back 2011 2012 mobile phone penetration in indonesia for example would be you know low single digits and then i remember back in the end of 2012 you know one of my colleagues met some chinese um manufacturers and and you know those were the first days where you know, the 150 US dollar, $100 um, 3G Android phones suddenly came to life. And in a matter of one or two years, mobile phone penetration has gone to 50%, 60%. So we had the sudden explosion of the market. Obviously, you know, we had the ability to raise quite a lot of money um, to support our growth. And, and, you know, I think a lot of things came together at the same time. And, and you know, it was a hell of a ride. So, what ended up being the business model for the folks that are that are listening to get it? So I mean Lazada was a general e-commerce model like amazon uh, and, and you know we started off the business as a retail business yeah so, so buying and selling products um, but we realized very quickly in, you know by the first year that just doing retail buying and selling uh, was across a region with six markets with with no kind of common inventory going to be very expensive and, and we've you know, basically started moving towards a 3P model, a marketplace model, um, where we not only empowered big brands and big merchants, regional and, and global players, but we really started empowering those small micro merchants, these small manufacturers, um, you know, across each of our markets, um, and, and building tools for them to compete on, on a on a you know global scale, um, you know, with the the Samsung's, with the uh procter and gambles um, of this world and, and, you know, giving these small merchants, these small entrepreneurs, these tools allowed us to, to scale the platforms in the early years, 2013, 2014, three, 400% year over year, um, that, that creating that massive growth. Um, we also very early decided uh, and saw that, that logistics was going to be a key challenge um, for the region, you know, e-commerce logistics or logistics, full stop, were were very underdeveloped, um, and and we decided very early on that we needed to build our own logistics. You know, we we didn't have the benefit of an Amazon, you know, which, when the day they founded, had FedEx and UPS and U.S. Post there. We had nothing. Yeah. Um. So so the way we went about is we built our own logistics. Uh, by the time I left, we had, you know, over 20 warehouses, I think. Um, you know, we had logistics workers you know, north of 10,000 across warehouse, Our own last mile fleet. We worked with more than a hundred different um, regional and local um, uh, logistics providers. I mean, it, it was a massive uh, logistics machine that, that really amazing. helped us. Combine that with the the merchants to to scale the business to to what it was at the end.
0: Because how much capital did you guys raise in total for the business prior to the acquisition?
1: Um, prior to the acquisition of my, uh, well, it's been long, I think close to a billion. Close to a billion, billion, billion. dollars. Yeah.
0: yeah, Very cool. What was it like to grow like 300% or 400% year over year and also increasing like the headcount of people, you know, in the thousands every year? I mean, did it feel like, uh, driving a formula one, you know, car where all the pieces are wobbly and you just keep going no matter what?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I- <laughs> I don't think it was a Formula One car because, you know, I I wouldn't call myself uh, a Formula One driver. (laughs) (laughs) I would would call myself as a, as a, as a kid who just learned how to drive, who was then supposed to drive, drive a Ferrari at 300 kilometers per hour uh, with zero experience. I mean, it was just mad. Uh, It it was absolutely mad. I mean, we, I think between 2013 and 2014, our headcount went from you know, I think low, maybe 1,000, 1,500 to over five, 6,000 uh, in a matter of 18, 24 months. I, I mean, wow. and this is being done with, you know, I was at the time, you know, 33, 34, you know, and I was by far the oldest almost in in the team. I had, you know, of course, some of my colleagues and co-founders who, who were similar age than me, but then we had in the countries, even younger teams, you know, where the country CEOs would be at 27, 28 and suddenly having, 500, 600, 700 people below them, you know, you know, any of us before, you know, the, the most people we ever managed was probably two or three. Um, you know, so we did a lot of, a lot of really stupid stuff. Uh, we did a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, but we, we, we just kind of toughed it out. We, we, you know, we had some really gritty, gritty, uh, entrepreneurs on the ground who, who really saw the bigger vision of, of the way we were transforming, the way people were consuming across the region was was just massively exploding and emerging and then the whole middle class of 150 200 million people enter, entering the consuming class so we were just riding this wave you know holding on for dear life and then trying not to you know completely mess up um you know we had tough competition in those early years and, and and you know we we had to fight those guys off um but we toughed it out i mean like i said we made you know, more mistakes than, than we did things right. But the few things we did right, we focused on and, and, and just, just, you know, worked incredibly hard. Yeah. So obviously, you know, when
0: you're growing at that pace, you also need to grow yourself. So what did you do well in order to scale yourself at the same speed and in parallel with the same growth that the business was experiencing?
1: <laughs> what did I do well? Uh, I mean, I mainly focused on the things I didn't do well. Um, that's probably my German side. Um, you know, I think what I did well is, is is you know, I think I've built a really good team. Uh, I was always extremely proud of, of the team and the colleagues that I've built around me. I think I had a good instinct for, um, you know, bringing the right people on board and, and then being able to, to motivate them, um, you know, to really help them see the bigger vision and the opportunity that we're going after. You know, there's always a bit of a stick and carrot. Um, you know, different people need different motivations. Um, I was quite rough around the edges back then, uh, probably still am. Um, but back then, you know, under the pressure that 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 we faced at times, uh, maybe a bit too rough. Um, you know, but it worked. I think we were incredibly battle hardened and and uh, and just went with it. I think the, the second thing which helped me is is you know I was a, a bit older um you know i had my failures in life before both in banking and consulting you know things w- weren't always a straight line you know i you know i was you know not always the first to get promoted and, and, and stuff like that so i kind of reflected on on you know that things don't always go well things can also go badly and i tried to stay humble during during those uh, especially the early years um you know my wife was extremely supportive and, and grounded me and and kind of saying you know this is this is just you know your work and and the rest it doesn't change who you are um so you know really try to stay humble, try to keep the team humble um and 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 hungry um and the third probably strength that I just had is just not taking no for an answer Yeah, you know, it it just i just you know if I saw a wall i I ran against it once and if it didn't break, I ran again at it until it broke, even it took twenty thirty forty times i mean an example would be apple we were i think only the second platform globally to get. Apple as a, as a licensed reseller, you know, back I think it was 2016, 2017, and it took me 20, 30 meetings uh, to 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 get them on board. It's it's just persistence and, and just not taking no for an answer, which is really required, you know, really just keep on going until until you drop, pretty much. Absolutely. So, at what point Alibaba comes knocking? Ah, when when did Alibaba come knocking? I mean, the, I I. Uh, one of the last external rounds that we had before um, Alibaba was was Dimasik joined us as an investor back in 2014, and they had very good relationships with with Alibaba, obviously because they're a big shareholder of Alibaba. And you know, at some point, they they said I should meet uh, Joe Tsai, who who was Jack Ma's number two, um, you know, until very recently, um, and uh, he's one of the the fa- original founders of, of Alibaba. Um, you know, and that's a meeting I took sometime, uh, I think summer of 2015. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's one of these meetings it's, uh, you know, which are very tempting, you know, you, you're you're faced with an, you know, incredibly inspiring entrepreneur like, like Joe, um, you know, who's incredibly smart and, and charming and, and, you know, he explained to. Uh, me. What their vision was? How, how Alibaba wanted to expand globally, and and how Lazada could be, a, you know, a key part of that expansion. Um, you know, and I really saw the opportunity, um, of 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 doing that, and the experience of that. You know, like I said, I mean, we've 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 been through, you know, three four incredibly wild years, um, and you know the ability to get support, um, some stability um you know experiences having people you can learn from um getting technical support getting financial support in what you know was becoming and, and continued to be an incredibly competitive environment there were rumors about amazon amazon coming into the region um you know a lot of it made a lot of sense at the time you know it's 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 not an easy decision um to to you know selling you know what is your baby um but but it made a lot of sense uh, at the time, and, and we started having discussions um, which lasted quite long um, to make sure that, that all sides are, are happy. Um, but in the end, they were uh, successful, and I think both sides are, are, are very happy with the outcome.
0: So how long did it take from start to to finish to actually you know signing the asset purchase agreement? I mean, the agreement.
1: To- oh, I mean that took until. I mean that took until twenty sixteen. I mean that was a long discussion, <laughs> a long negotiation, a lot of sleepless nights. Yeah, got it. So then, so then,
0: what were the terms of the deal that were announced?
1: Um, the the terms of the deals that were announced, the deal was structured in in multiple phases, um, over you know a two three year period. Um, they bought majority of the company, um, back in twenty sixteen. Um, I think the valuation at the time was one point five billion. And um, then they increased their share um, in 2017, where they bought out a lot of the, the old shareholders. Um, I think the valuation back then was then 3.1 billion U.S. Um, and then they bought out uh, the remaining shareholders uh, over the, the next couple of years. And I basically exited the business um, March uh, 2018, after about two years of, of helping the transition. And making sure that that you know this really becomes a, a core part of Alibaba. Got it. So close to a
0: four billion acquisition, give or take, correct? Give or take yeah. Got it. So so what was it for you? Because I mean obviously here you know like you you took a big risk you know moving to Asia. You build this thing into into something massive, um, incredible outcome. What was that moment for you of? Of of exiting the business, you know, because I'm sure that was tough for you, quite an emotional, you know,
1: moment too, no? Yeah, I think it was a, it was, you know, very bittersweet. You know, it's, a, you know, on the one side, it's it's obviously a great story and, and and a great success to 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 exit a business, you know, so successfully, and you know, I'm incredibly proud of, of that achievement, and, you know, I'm even more proud that the, you know, the integration with, with Alibaba went extremely well um you know ali you know lazada continues to do extremely well uh, in southeast asia um you know under the stewardship of, of alibaba um so so really kind of making the, the the brand you know outlast the the founder um you know was extremely important for me and 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 mattered a lot to me um but the, you know the bitter part is is you know you you have a business which you grow from from nothing Um, which you put a lot of blood sweat and tears in and and then suddenly from one day to the next you're you're a general without an army I mean you you wake up in the morning and you're like what now and I thought that was a incredibly difficult period for me because I felt that I was still absolutely in my prime I still you know I still love you know building a business driving a business working with a team um, you know changing changing the world and 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 you know thinking about how you can you know drive a revolution in some sort of way um and then you wake up you know one day and then you know you have nothing to do uh, um which which is very sad and and you you know you still miss your colleagues you miss your company um and and you know you 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 kind of have to figure out what's next and i you know i i reflected a lot on you know who i am what i did well what i didn't do well um and you know came to the conclusion you know fairly fast, probably too fast. Most people said I should take, you know, a year off or so. Um, I I barely took off three, four months. Um, uh and and decided very fast that you know I was not done. I wanted to build another great company um and 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 continue you know being a CEO, continue working for consumers and 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 changing the way they consume. Um, so, so I wanted to get back on the horse fairly fast. You know, I think I was 39 when I exited Lazada, um, and that, in my view, was was way too young, way too young to to uh, to retire. Got it. And obviously,
0: when when you know at this point, I mean, you were already making some investments doing in other in other startups, and and I understand that that one of those investments led to your next um, chapter, and that's with Vestier. So. So tell us, you know, like what, how did that chapter come about uh, and, and, and what, was that, what was that transition like?
1: Um, so the Vestiaire opportunity came a bit out of nowhere, uh, to be very honest. Uh, you know, I was looking uh, at what I could do next. Um, you know, I, I really kind of started forming the idea around, um, you know, what I had learned in Asia uh, and one of, one of those learnings could I bring back, in my view, to the West, to Europe, to the U.S., um, you know, if you if you step back, you know, what did I do back in 2012? You know, we applied, you know, e-commerce best practices, you know, from the West, i.e. Amazon, um, you know, to Southeast Asia. Um, but over those next six, seven years, um, if you look at e-commerce in Southeast Asia or in Asia in general, especially China, um, you know, e-commerce has really developed differently. You know, Amazon is still very similar today than it was in back in 2011, 2012. But if you look at e-commerce in in China and Southeast Asia, it's 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 a it's a very different experience. It's much more driven by small entrepreneurs, small merchants. It's a much more social experience, much more community driven. It's, it's it's a lot around. It's all app first. It's all around engagement, gamification. It's really social commerce in 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 a very different shape or form. And I and I really felt that this kind of e-commerce model was not just you know something which could work in asia it was really something which could work globally because if you look at your your young consumer 15 16 year old girl whether she sits in jakarta or paris or new york you know they're all behaving the same way on their on their mobile it's just that in southeast asia you know mobile came first i mean people leapfrogged the whole desktop era and and you know i really felt that building something around this engagement around the gamification could be a great opportunity in Europe. Yeah? Um, so I started looking at some business models and I thought about building or investing or, or joining a company. And then the Vestiaire opportunity came you know, out of nowhere. I didn't really know the company, but I looked at what the fundamentals of the business were. You know, It's a second-hand luxury business, um, which is really driven by a huge engagement of the consumers, buyers and sellers with the products, with the brands, with the designers, um, you know, if you think about a, a secondhand buying and selling experience, it's it's you know you really open up your personal wardrobe to to um, a broader community of fashion lovers uh, on on the selling side and on the buying side, you're really looking for things you know that you didn't buy firsthand. You're looking at an endless aisle which which can go over decades. It's it's that kind of Alibaba's cave. It's a treasure hunt. You you find things. Um, you know, that you can find nowhere else. I mean our catalog is, you know, now, you know, over one and a half million items on the on the platform. You know, you compare that to, you know, even an porte or, or matches, I mean their assortment is, is barely a hundred thousand uh, or, or even less fifty, forty, fifty thousand. Know? 50,000 So so it's it's really this this huge treasure um, hunt. Um, so you have this emotional connection both on the buying and selling side and and, and obviously it's fashion and, and it's our customers are mainly female 90 plus percent are female so girls in luxury fashion i think the only comparable is is boys and, and football um or rugby or or basketball or depending on wh- where you live so it's it's you know people are really engaged and i thought that this idea to build on this engagement you know through these learnings around social commerce gamification engagement you know is something to build on and, and, and you know i spent time with the investors with with the with the business and i got more and more excited about it um you know that was really the first big pillar um you know that that you know triggered it um you know i felt that my experience from lazada um just the sheer scale that lazada had you know would allow me to to bring a lot of best practices to vestiaire and then finally and i think that that was really the clincher was was this whole concept that secondhand is is ultimately you know, circular is an incredibly sustainable business, and and we're living in a world where Paris can have you know north of forty Celsius um, in the summer, and and you know we all know that we need to do something, and and you know I have three daughters now, uh, you know I want to leave the the, the world in a better place than, than what I found it, um, so that responsibility and opportunity to to do something about it was was incredibly inspiring um you know it, it was not just about building another big e-commerce company and chasing orders and gmv but but really doing something that can fundamentally make a difference i mean if you if you look at retail if you look at fashion it's you know one of the top i think it's the second most polluting industry in the world um you know through all the products that are being sold and the way that people consume today you know fast fashion being being you know one of the biggest culprits of of um pollution and, and secondhand, really bringing a real, real solution. You know, I think that really, really got me uh, very, very excited very fast. And, and those three things put together uh, were enough to to get me to join the business as a CEO, to um, to also invest in the business, um, to to really, you know, feel like this is mine, um, and and then you know, you know, go for it again, basically.
0: And how did you join as the CEO? I mean, was this a conversation that happened at a board level? something that you know maybe one day you receive a call and they're like hey you know like we would like for you to jump in or or why did you did they bring you as as the ceo of the business
1: um i mean they were thinking at the time to there were several founders in the business uh the, the, the main founder who was the, the chairman ceo um you know i i think there were just you know the ideas that that it was time for him to to to, to move on um you know, to really bring a bit more experience, a, a new vision, a, a broader vision uh, into the business. Um, and I started having discussions with some of the investors, um, you know, what that could look like. And, um, you know, and I think the opportunity became very clear for both sides on, on, on you know, what it would mean for them, what it would mean for, for me and, and what difference I could bring to the, the business.
0: So obviously when when you come in you know into into a business obviously this is a, a a different type of journey as as building and scaling something from the ground up you know you're you're coming in where there is something already built like how did you come because you joined you know a couple of years ago this company was founded in 2009 so so how would you say that that especially maybe like your background from McKinsey and from investment banking how do you think that you applied some of these lessons to really take a look at what worked and what didn't work, and how did you really like apply that vision so that everyone could get really moved by it and inspired by it, and 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 and, and get things to be shaping up a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think the, I mean the main thing is, is is you know assessing what worked and what didn't work was probably the easy part because I think you know after building a, an e-commerce business like Lazada. Um, you know you learn a lot you see a lot of different things which work and which don't work and and that really gives you an incredible advantage i mean you know the ability to having made so many mistakes at lazada um you know you learn from your mistakes and and, and I can promise you I made a lot of mistakes and Lazada you know across six different markets we made even more mistakes so you know i you know that learning is 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 very hard to replace so figuring out what what we wanted to do and what needed to be fixed was was probably the easiest part. I think the hardest part then was, you know, you know everything that needs to be fixed. And my my roadmap of things to fix, you know, even at the time, you know, eighteen months ago was two, three, four years out. And and, you know, today I would say we're maybe twenty, twenty five percent along that road. Um, you know, the question was then, you know, much less what do we need to do? But, you know, how can we do it and how fast can we do it? And and, and really getting some um, you know, support on that. So I brought Brought a few people from, um, you know, some of my old colleagues at Lazada wanted to to continue working with me, and and they came along. Um, I still, you know, kept a very strong team at Vestiaire. I mean, the team at Vestiaire had huge strength, um, and and the two sides were very complementary. Uh, working together, um, you know, they really represented the 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 old the fashion DNA um, that a, the business has built around. They they built this incredible community of fashion lovers. And, and you know, my side and, and some of my colleagues from Lazada brought the the e-commerce, the tech experience, and then we really tried to merge these businesses together and, and these experiences, which was not easy. I mean, there's there's clearly some, you know, some challenges that we faced, uh, you know, getting to know each other. Um, but the key in these kind of moments is to really rally around the vision. You know, where is this business going to be in ten, twenty, thirty years, and, and really that belief that I hold that you know. The founders who are still there, uh, Fanny and Sophie, who who I uh, you know really represent the fashion DNA, and who I really wanted to have continually co-leading the business with me. Um, You know, we all believe in that same vision on the role that Vestiaire can play on changing the way people think about consumption, about the difference we can make, and to to make the planet more sustainable. And and, you know, in these moments of of, you know difficulties and disagreements and, and, and little fights here and there you know you step back and you really focus on on the bigger picture and then the bigger picture was extremely clear the vision was extremely clear the mission that everyone in the company has has really clear and and even to this day you know it's it's you know now it's it's one machine and the company is doing extremely well you know we we all you know you know we all you know have that same kind of passion and drive that that you know my previous team at Lazada had um, but it still every day we remind ourselves you know what is that bigger vision. What are we trying to achieve? How are we changing the way people consume? What can we do to make a difference? Um, and and that's just incredibly motivating you know, every day. That you're actually waking up in the morning and you're saying, you know, I'm actually doing something against this huge threat the world is facing, you know, which is global warming. And and you know, I think in especially in this day and age of of COVID, um, you know, that that we've all kind of gone through and are still going through over the last five six months. Um, you know, just reminds ourselves that the threat um, you know, that we're facing through global warming is 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 exponentially bigger than than what we've gone through. So, the need for action is really now. And 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 running a business which is not it's not a charity. I mean, we're a business. We 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 succeed if we be- make people more act more circular, act more sustainable. So they buy and sell. Uh, you know you know, use clothes, they extend the life cycle. I mean, the, the, the pinnacles of, of sustainability are reuse, um, repair, recycle, and, and we, we provide a real solution to that. Um, and and that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, we succeed if, if we make people more sustainable. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to do. So how, how much capital has Vestir uh, raised to date? You know, in total, year has raised around two hundred million uh, to date. Um, out of which, probably, you know, since since I joined, we raised about uh, you know eighty five million or so.
0: And how big is uh, is the business? Anything that you can share around, maybe like number of
1: employees or anything else? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we have roughly ten million members. Um, you know, who, uh, with the platform, and that's what we really call our community. Um, we we have close to two million items on the catalog. Uh, so we add on average twelve, thirteen thousand items, new items to the platform every day. I mean, not we, but the community does. Um, we're now approximately four hundred people across uh, six offices worldwide. Um, you know, and 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 we're just going for it. That's amazing. That's amazing. So
0: I guess uh, you know, typically one of the questions that I that I ask the guests that come on the show is. If you could go back in time, Max, and and give yourself one piece of business advice, you know, before launching a business, especially knowing what you know now. And and really have that time to have a chat with your younger self. Maybe it's that younger Max that was thinking about moving to, to Asia and launching a business. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself given what you know now?
1: Um, that's, a, that's a that's a which is one. I mean, there are many things I would tell myself. I think that the main one is really um being very very clear why you're building the business why 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 you are building business what is important for you every day when you build a business and and once you know you know for me that was very very clear lazada was very very clear vestiaire but it is extremely important just to um to communicate that over and over again to the teams to really remind people why you're doing things because once everyone is aligned around the vision and the mission of the company, you know, so many of the small little disagreements and arguments, um, you know, disappear. And, and, you know, while you, you know, while, you know, that is obvious and, and as a founder, you know that for yourself and even your, your co-founders and the, you know, the early teams, um you know all know that because they interacted with you from day one you know you had dinners with them hundreds of dinners over beers and you know you've been in the trenches for for months and years on end you know everyone knows that but as the company gets bigger you know once you're crossing the first you know thousand people once you're even getting bigger five thousand ten thousand people the the people in the company the rest of the people in the company are obviously much further removed from you. You know, you don't know everyone by name anymore. You, you you know sometimes don't even recognize people if they work for you or not because you know the company is just too big. And and you know some of these younger um, team members also don't know some of the other founders. So you start having that that one degree of separation, and they don't understand that that drive, that mission, that vision that that you're trying to achieve, and the whole communication um with the broader audience, the repetition of, of how often you just say, you know, this is what we're trying to achieve and this is how we're gonna achieve it, is become so vital. And then you see these companies um, that have passed the test of of not just growing over one or two decades, but really have outlived, you know, the founders and the the original entrepreneurs and lasted 50, 60, 100, 150 years. You know, one thing that these companies all have in common is that they have incredibly clear joint mission uh, very clearly defined uh, values and they're extremely good at um you know in some sort of way the the propaganda which which you know you over and over repeat and i think you cannot start early enough uh, as as a founder as an entrepreneur to 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 practice that because you know when you get into this growth period of 100 plus percent you know you 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 so fast become reactive versus being proactive because things are just flying at you at a million miles per hour and you're just you're just reacting you're defending you're just trying to keep everything together and and you know at that point at some point it's i'm not saying it's too late you can always you know restart that because it becomes much harder to build that you know that 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 joint propaganda across and, you know, what matters and to, to really institutionalize that. So I think that's really the key thing that I've, I've learned and, and which is extremely important.
0: I love it. I love it. So, Max, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Um, probably the best way to, to reach out is just to write me an email. I mean, my email address is pretty simple. It's, it's com. Um, you know, I really try to, to answer all the emails uh, that I get, you know, if I don't, uh, you know, don't take it personal, um, you know, maybe something distracted me at that moment, or I, I just, you know, I was too tired to reply, uh, be persistent. Um, you know, I I, I I, love interacting with people and I love, you know, sharing my experience, but most importantly, I also love learning from other people. Um, so just reach out and, and, and you know, uh, always happy to meet new people. Amazing. Well, Max, thank you so much for being on the
0: Maker show today.